All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. This is Nick. And this is Priyas Over Coffee. Coffee. So guys, today we're going to be starting the first part of our two-part series about lupus in pregnancy. So Nick, what are our learning objectives? So we're going to start off understanding the definition and diagnostic criteria of lupus. That'll be a throwback to medical school for many of you. Um, we'll then discuss the possible manifestations in different organ systems of lupus. And then finally, we'll get into the pregnancy things, reviewing the adverse outcomes from lupus and pregnancy, both on the maternal side as well as the fetal side. Um, and then probably needing to jump into a second part, admittedly, for this podcast episode, but we'll see where we get today. Um, we'll be kind of starting a discussion about the management of lupus and pregnancy specifically. Um, the reading for today comes from a brand new SMFM consult series number 64 that covers systemic lupus erythematosus in pregnancy. So Faye, um, I tried to say those words out loud. I hope that that's right. But what is <laughs> systemic lupus erythematosus? Yes. Yeah, so we'll either just be calling that SLE or lupus on this episode because that is quite a mouthful. Uh, but essentially, lupus is a chronic multi-system inflammatory autoimmune disease characterized by relapses and remissions. And many organs can be involved and manifestations are variable between individuals. So um, unfortunately, it sounds like it could be a little bit of everything. Um, and the reason we care about lupus in pregnancy is that the prevalence of lupus, uh, while it's overall not super high, 28 to 150 in 100,000 individuals, it's more prevalent in females than in males. And so it often affects young adults. Um, and so it is a condition that we likely will encounter in pregnant individuals. And currently about 3,300 deliveries per year are in people with lupus. So let's jump right into it, Nick. This is something that I think, you know, we get confused by a lot and we often refer to our rheumatology colleagues, but let's talk about how we diagnose lupus. 
So, yeah, no, lupus, I think you're right, Faye, is really confusing for the non-internist or non-rheumatologist in terms of diagnosis. Um, and maybe it's just because we don't see enough of it. But it's really a syndrome and a diagnosis that requires the presence of characteristic clinical features as well as confirmatory lab studies. Um, so if you remember back on our long time ago episode on antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, um, that's another one of those where you have to have both clinical features as well as confirmatory lab studies. Um, now with lupus, kind of unfortunately, there are really broad clinical manifestations and there's not a particular pathognomonic feature or lab test that you can get. Um, but usually as the OBGYN or the subspecialist taking care of them in reproductive health, you're not going to need to diagnose lupus. Somebody's going to come to you already with this diagnosis. Um, but knowing the diagnostic criteria or what made the diagnostic criteria for that patient can be helpful in recognizing those who have lupus or are having a flare um, and can help the patient have faster recognition and referral to rheumatology ultimately. So as we go through diagnostic criteria, um, apparently in the world of lupus, there are two sets of diagnostic criteria. Um, the first one is called the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology, or the ULAR criteria, um, which reports a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 93% for the diagnosis. I am hazarding to read this out on the podcast because it's really a long and complicated system um, that starts off with getting an ANA. Um, and then from there, there's an additive criteria if you have a positive ANA at 1 to 80 or more significant of a titer. Um, and you add those up and get a score. And if that score is 10 or more, um, they have lupus. So it's really, <laughs> there's a lot of them here. As I just briefly browse, there's probably like 20 different things that are here that can contribute into this score. Um, so I will not read those out on the podcast today. We'll just include those on our website so that you can take a look at them. And they're also included on that uh, consensus from the SMFN uh, consult series. The second one is probably more familiar, I would think, to our U.S. audience, because this is the one that I feel like I remember from medical school, um, is the Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics, or the aptly named SLIC system. Um, the sensitivity is 97% and specificity is 84%. Um, this is a list of 17 criteria, four of which need to be um, satisfied with at least one of those being a clinical criteria and one of them being an immunologic or laboratory criteria. And then also requires the presence of either ANA or anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. Again, 17 things. I'm not going to read them out on the podcast, um, but be sure to check out the website so you can kind of get a sense. You know, there's lots of stuff that's like, again, oral or nasal ulcers, um, synovitis involving two or more joints, um, proteinuria of 500 milligrams or greater. It's really a broad list of things that can come up and contribute to this diagnosis. All right, so now that we've talked about diagnosis and diverted most of our listeners' attention to the website, Faye, um, let's jump in to talk about specifically pregnancy and lupus and the, the risks involved. 
Sure. So one of the big reasons we care about patients uh, who have lupus in pregnancy is that there is increased maternal morbidity and mortality that we know about. And these complications include things like nephritis, rheumatologic complications, neurologic abnormalities. And we also know that there can be several fold increased risk of things like thrombosis, thrombocytopenia, infection, multi-organ disease. Um, and pregnancy itself, interestingly, can also increase the risk of a disease flare with 15 to 30% of these flares being severe and some being even life-threatening. So what I thought we would do, Nick, is kind of go through some of these and talk about what lupus nephritis looks like, what hematologic complications, et cetera, look like. So the first would be the lupus nephritis. Um, and this is when there's active renal disease that's defined as greater than one gram per day of proteinuria or a GFR of less than 60 in the non-pregnant state. There is an increased risk of permanent renal damage if the GFR going into pregnancy is less than 40, or if the creatinine going into pregnancy is greater than or equal to 1.5 milligrams per deciliter. One issue, if, as we, I think, pointed out in one of our other episodes called Imitators of Preeclampsia, is that it's really difficult to differentiate lupus nephritis from preeclampsia. Um, features that you know we think are more common with lupus flares and less likely to be associated with preeclampsia are things like an increase in anti-double-stranded DNA antibody, decreased levels of complements, and while there can be thrombocytopenia, usually you don't have thrombocytopenia or elevated LFTs, which you might see in severe preeclampsia or HELP syndrome. Also, a kidney biopsy can be used to help differentiate the diagnosis. And a biopsy that shows glomeruloendotheliosis can yield a definitive diagnosis. And then the reason it's important to differentiate between the two is that the treatment for lupus nephritis can be medical and you can hopefully keep that patient pregnant for a little while longer while severe preeclampsia um, that borders on HELP syndrome may require delivery. And if we don't differentiate, we could potentially be delivering an extremely premature infant with no need. So that's lupus nephritis. Let's talk a little bit about those hematologic complications and central nervous system issues. Yeah, so hematologically, we'll start there. Um, note, lupus can lead to thrombosis as well as thrombocytopenia. So you have the vast spectrum of clotting issues. Um, but probably one of the more important ones for us to remember are the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome um, complications. And this is one of those thromboses one. Um, we did a separate podcast on this, but Unlike the lupus diagnostic criteria that I decided not to read off for you, the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is really important for your boards and for CREOGs, and so commit these to memory. Again, you need to have the combination of clinical criteria and a laboratory criteria to meet the diagnosis. From the clinical side, you either need to have a vascular thrombosis, so one or more clinical episodes of an artery, venous, or small vessel thrombus, or an obstetrical criteria, which again is usually how we meet these patients, and it's one of three things. A unexplained death of a structurally normal fetus at 10 or more weeks of gestation, a preterm birth of a structurally normal fetus under 34 weeks of gestation because of severe preeclampsia or some sort of sequelae of uteroplacental insufficiency. So frequently we're thinking in this category, again, either severe preeclampsia or severe growth restriction without any other diagnostic um, explanation. Or lastly, a history of three or more unexplained consecutive spontaneous abortions at under 10 weeks of gestation. In terms of the laboratory criteria, you're looking at one of three labs, the lupus anticoagulant, 
the anti-cardiolipin antibodies, and the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies. And with all of these, you need to obtain them um, at least 12 weeks apart on two occasions in order to cinch the laboratory criteria diagnosis. Again, we'll link to that old podcast as well as these diagnostic criteria one more time on the website just so you have them to review. But star this in your brain. This is the one coming out of this episode if you need diagnostic criteria to remember. Um, on the CNS side, um, no, lupus has a variety of manifestations, including headaches, seizures, neuropathy, um, chorea, cerebritis, and even psychosis. And CNS vasculitis is actually one of the most serious lupus disorders. Other organs can also be involved with like cutaneous lupus erythematosus. That's those kind of classic skin lesions that we think about with lupus, um, but can also affect other organ systems such as the bones, the joints, the lungs, and the heart. I think ultimately, Faye, though, we want to come back uh, to pregnancy specifically. You mentioned a moment ago about the sort of increased risk surrounding morbidity and mortality, a lot of from lupus disease itself, but does lupus kind of carry special risks to pregnancy? Sure. Yeah. So we'll break this down to obstetric outcomes and then also fetal and neonatal outcomes or complications. So specifically for obstetric outcomes, there's a threefold increased risk of pregnancy loss in patients who have lupus. Uh, but if well controlled, that risk ranges somewhere between 8 to 32%, which may not be substantially different from rates reported in the general obstetric population for early pregnancy loss. We also know that there's a significantly increased risk of preeclampsia. About 15 to 35% of patients with lupus will be diagnosed with preeclampsia, and the risk is highest in those with active disease at the time of conception, renal disease, chronic hypertension, those on high-dose prednisone, or those with antiphospholipid antibodies. And so the big thing I think that we need to take away is that it seems that if your lupus is less well controlled, as is common with any type of autoimmune disease, for example, that your outcomes are going to be poor. So it's really important to try and control someone's lupus before they try to get pregnant. And the other way to try and decrease the risk of preeclampsia is that low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams, beginning at 12 weeks of gestation. So that's the obstetric outcomes, Nick, that we need to worry about. What about those fetal and neonatal outcomes? On the fetal side, um, the risk of fetal growth restriction is pretty remarkably elevated. It's somewhere in terms of incidence from 6 to 35%, depending on the study that you're reading. Um, and so again, it is not an insignificant risk with lupus. Finally, there's an increased risk of preterm birth, um, and that risk ranges from, again, 19 to 49%, so a very, very wide range there, but also a significantly high range. And that risk of preterm birth is really associated with the degree of disease activity at the time of conception. So increasing disease activity at the time of conception increases that risk for preterm birth, whether that's manifested in the form of nephritis, chronic hypertension, or the presence of APLS antibodies, and those can just compound that risk too. From the neonatal side, um, there is a condition called neonatal lupus, which is super rare. It only occurs in 1 in 20,000 live births, um, but it is a super serious complication. 
In lupus, some folks can have autoantibodies known as the SSA and SSB antibodies. And some of you may be having some dings in your head going back to medical school, thinking about Sjogren's syndrome, or maybe you've heard of these as anti-Rho or anti-Law antibodies before, um, but it's all kind of in that same realm. So these antibodies can cross the placenta and cause this neonatal lupus syndrome, um, the manifestations of which can include things like skin lesions, congenital heart block, anemia, hepatitis, and thrombocytopenia. The skin lesions are the most common manifestation, occurring in about 50% of affected infants. Recurrence risk in patients who have had a history of needle lupus and positive antibodies in a prior pregnancy is around 15 to 20%, so pretty significant. Um, and because this is due to antibodies, you no, know, a lot of these manifestations will resolve ultimately once those antibodies clear in about three to six months after birth. But the congenital heart block itself, which is one of the more serious complications of this, causes irreversible damage to fibrosis of myocardial tissue and the conduction system. And those SSA antibodies, even once they're cleared, that's not going to fix the damage that's been caused. And so um, those babies ultimately need things like pacemakers and other more serious interventions placed. All right, Faye. Well, you know, we're about like 15 plus minutes into the podcast here. Um, I think that we should cut because management of lupus takes a long time to talk about too. Why don't we stop and review what we've covered? Yes, absolutely. So we started off the podcast by discussing the definition of lupus. We talked about it being this chronic multi-system inflammatory autoimmune disease um, where many organs can be involved. And um, currently we have about 3,300 deliveries per year in people that have lupus. Lupus is a syndrome that requires both characteristic clinical features and confirmatory laboratory studies in order to diagnose. There are two broad systems of diagnostic criteria. One is the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology, or the ULAR criteria, and the second is the Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics, or the SLIC criteria. Um, we'll post both of those diagnostic criteria on our website so you can become a little bit familiar with them. Um, but again, the bottom line is clinical and laboratory criteria. In terms of pregnancy and lupus, we know that in pregnancy, lupus will increase maternal morbidity and mortality. And this is mostly due to things like lupus nephritis, hematologic complications, and neurologic abnormalities. But pregnancy also itself can increase the risk of disease flare. Lupus nephritis particularly is difficult to differentiate from preeclampsia, and so it's really important that we try and differentiate the two, both with laboratory values as well as potentially a kidney biopsy, so that we can avoid an extremely premature delivery. Hematologic complications include things like thrombosis and thrombocytopenia, as well as the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which we encourage you to remember the diagnostic criteria for. And finally, CNS Developments can include things like headaches, seizures, neuropathy, et cetera. And CNS vasculitis is going to be that most serious CNS disorder to look out for. In terms of the effects of lupus on pregnancy, again, there are serious obstetric, fetal, and neonatal complications that can occur. There's an increased risk obstetrically of pregnancy loss, um, as well as an increased risk of preeclampsia. And this is one of those major risk factors for the development of preeclampsia. So patients should be on low-dose aspirin starting at about 12 weeks of gestation through delivery to decrease their risk. 
On the fetal side, we see increased rates of growth restriction and preterm birth. The risk of preterm birth is certainly correlated with the amount of disease activity at the time of conception. Finally, on the neonatal complications, there's the 1 in 20,000 risk of neonatal lupus syndrome caused by the SSA and SSB antibodies crossing the placenta. These manifestations can be broad, including skin lesions, anemia, hepatitis, and thrombocytopenia, but the most significant and the irreversible one is congenital heart block um, because of the fibrosis of myocardial tissue and the conduction system, and those babies ultimately need pacemakers in order to continue to function and thrive. All right, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Ben. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Kriags Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Kriags Over Coffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash Kriags Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. We're going to have show notes for this show as well as all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website. That's at www.preoptobercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, coffee at gmail.com. <laughs>